Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater. On X Hunt Elite is worth every penny. It really is. Every hunt, every planning session, every gear purchase, I was on it already today. With your Elite membership, you will get application and draw odd tools, exclusive pro deals on gear from the industry's best, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage. And now Canada. On X Hunt Elite will make you more successful on your next next hunt try onyx hunt free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com slash hunt and use code meat eater for 20 percent off your new elite membership this is the meat eater podcast coming at you shirtless severely bug bitten and in my case underwearless we hunt the meat eater podcast you can't predict anything. Uh, Jimmy Dorn, how how many um <laughs> when the Seahawks got like how many pizzas did it cost you? When the Seahawks lost one of their playoff games. How many pizzas? Oh, goodness. It's got to be thousands of pizzas. It's quite a few. Because I all the to-go, the carryouts, the phone rings off the wall for several hours. Dude, a Super Bowl game? It's madness. Being a Seattle pizza man it's with the Seahawks in the Super Bowl? It's a good day. I didn't you got to selling some pizzas. I was. I didn't go to work the next day, I'll put it to you that way. It was because a, just you're depressed about business. Done. I think I'll look at it in two days. <laughs> So, so you really feel it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If the team does well, then Barstool. Pizza does well. Pizza does well. well. It's good for the Hawks. It's, it's good, good for, for me, yeah. <laughs> so we love them. We, when they come around, we treat them real well when we see them. The players. Players, coach, sure. Uh, Jimmy Dorn, um, do you remember how we met? I do. So I, I, I moved to Seattle, and I put up a thing on uh, social media of some sort saying, like, hey, man, moved, I moved to Seattle. And unbeknownst to me, Jimmy Dorn, who's in the pizza business, can we tell the name of your pizza place? Absolutely, Belltown Pizza. Jimmy Dorn, who's in the pizza business, owns Belltown Pizza. Unbeknownst to me, he sends an email in saying, hey, man, I saw uh, Steve move to Seattle. Tell him he's welcome anytime to drop by my pizza place. 
we'll talk a little hunting. Mm-hmm. I had no idea this went on. So when we moved to Seattle, we were in temporary housing for a little bit. And I took my youngster out to get a haircut. And it, we had to wait so long for him to get his damn haircut that by the time we got done getting his haircut, I knew I didn't have time to go home and make dinner. Because kids, like, there's a window when they want to eat. Well, they know? need to get fed. So we're walking down, and lo and behold, here's this place called Belltown Pizza. And I walk in with my kid just to order a pizza. And all of a sudden, there's a dude standing there being like, I can't believe you came. Pretty much. And I'm looking around like, I don't really understand, man. <laughs> Seems there's a lot of people here eating pizza. <laughs> and we've, been, we've been friendly ever since. But the thing I wanted to ask you, so this has nothing to do with uh, hunting and fishing and wild meat, but <laughs> when, the, when the Seahawks, they just like got kicked out. Was it the playoffs? Playoffs, second round. So they round, lost yeah. the game. They did. That's got to like, uh, that sucks for a pizza man, right? Yeah, well, we're obviously a lot busier if we're winning. We got a bunch of TVs. A lot of people do like to come down and watch the games. It's a good spot for it. And uh, yeah, absolutely. When we lose, it's, you know, it's over. A lot, significantly less people come out next week. So if it's a game night, Mm-hmm. or game day or game night. Are right. you like, oh, man, we're selling pizzas now? Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. No shit. Yeah, no, it works like a champ. That's why it's, like I said, very fortunate. We've had a pretty darn good football team here for a couple of years, so it's definitely been a boom, especially when it comes to the playoffs, always come January, February, beginning of the first quarter, generally slow. And uh, when we're winning, it's like the high clover. It's, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that, 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 that's the lovely and beautiful Jimmy Darn, um, Belltown Pizza. And then uh, also here as a guest is Matt Elliott. Matt, what do you have to say for yourself? What do I have to say for myself? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Patriots fan. Sorry, Jimmy. It's all good. But, uh, Should have ran the ball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nothing much, Steve. I'm happy to be here. Well, tell, tell everybody what you do for a living. I uh, work for Benchmade Knife Company. I'm the director of marketing. And love hunting and fishing. Big fan of the show. And drove up here this morning. Came the, up to do a little talking about, sounds like some Q&A. You know, now, the last time you were here, did we cover the fact that you are a obsessive fisherman, an obsessive fisher of smallmouth bass? No. The only thing I think we mentioned about fishing was that I cut a groove in my tooth biting fishing line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, Matt's got like a souped-up bass boat. He does do. a lot of bass fishing. And in conversation, he uh, revealed to me that he has never tasted a bass. Yeah. Like you can't bring yourself. Yeah. I don't know if it's that I can't bring myself to do it. There's a most... Hardcore, at least competitive bass fishermen. They don't touch they're, they're catch and release, and I just have never eaten bass, so I just haven't. Never I'm, a little I'm not, curious. I'm not. Oh yeah, I'm not against it. You told no. me. I told you I would eat some. No, you, you said if I came up. down yeah. and fish, yeah. but it's just like never even a little bit curious. I well, I, I always have a freezer full of salmon. I've got halibut. I I just I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Um, in in where I grew up, uh, smallmouth were considered a, a food fish. Like an eating yeah. fish, largemouth yeah. were considered not gen- not generally not generally regarded as an eating fish. Yeah, but they were like, you know as close as they are, you know taxonomically. Yeah, right? and the way people kind of lump together, they were viewed at least in our circle. 
they're viewed as very different fish. Yeah, they're the large. I, this is hearsay, but the largemouth I understand tastes a little muddier. The oh, meat's yeah. a little softer. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Smallmouth are more aggressive. They generally live in cooler water. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, the good ones like you know at certain times of year you get them coming out of Lake Michigan, and um yeah like very high like a like considered like a very high quality not just a frying fish but a grilling fish. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm. I'll eat it. I think largemouths taste a little like like kind of weedy. Interesting. Almost. But a guy I grew up by my fishing mentor would he would leave them skin on, soak them overnight in milk, and grill them. I've yeah. heard the milk trick before with other meats too, right? Yeah, you hear yeah. it often times yeah. with fish. Yeah. I've taken catfish and soaked them in milk. My buddy Dunks. soaks stuff in buttermilk and then fries it. Yeah. He does salmon, takes cubed up salmon, pink salmon, like low-grade salmon. Right. Cubes it, soaks it in buttermilk, and fries it in panko. That shit is good, man. I bet. Yeah. And then uh, Giannis Boutelis. Howdy. That's it. It's regular old Giannis. Thanks for having me on again. Nothing exciting. <laughs> Nothing exciting there. Lane Tawny from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Believe that. And you want to say, say it, I just say we're just keeping this train going. I think we were just talking about earlier, like uh, we do a bunch of stuff uh, these few months, going to shot show and then sheep show, and then we just take an airplane, see each other here again in uh, Seattle. So we're keeping the train going. Yeah, we're doing fan question part five. This might be the last fan question one ever because we're kind of getting to the end of of like fan questions that come in all the time. Does this mean they get more difficult as we go? No, Land, I want to direct this one to you. Oh, first, out of yes, the box? Yes, they do. Oh, you mean, hold on, say it yeah. again? Are the questions getting more difficult oh, as yeah, we like, go? Oh, yeah, hear this one. They're more obscure. Well, this is hear like this one. First one out of the box. <laughs> Listen to this one. This is for you, Land. Okay. Easterners, like Steve Rinella and others, put their trust in liberal politicians. Well, us Oregon hunters and fishermen know how they preserve our so-called public lands. They gate them with huge steel gates and tell us that we can still use them, you just have to hike in. That's fine for good old Steve with his Hollywood stars and camera crew. I'm 65 years old, and my hiking 5 to 10 miles in the wilds and packing elk quarters out are long past, but Steve Rinella probably has a helicopter drop him and his cronies off and pick them up. By the way, the BLM and federal employees unlock the gates and drive all over whenever they want. Public access, my ass. Is that a question? question? <laughs> it, it sounds like a, a statement. Just a, I love that guy, just man. Getting up on the soapbox. I love that guy. We're not gonna do that one. Oh, do you want to? Do, you want to take that question? I mean, what I like. I think it's a perfect opportunity to talk about multiple use of our. Can we talk about helicopters that I've never flown in a helicopter on a hunting trip in my entire life? Well, you just said it. Like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, that's obviously one of those things that uh, doesn't make much sense. I, I think it's about multiple use, right, on our public lands. And does that mean that everything should be open everywhere all the time? No. That's why you have wilderness, which, by the way, is only two percent of our public lands. Some of those gates that I think are being put up, it's not because. People are trying to keep people out because they can't maintain those roads because our budget's been going down for a long time. Yeah. And so they, without understanding that whole, I think, process, but I think the, the biggest one there is it's for multiple use. You should have places where you can go behind that, that gate and ride a bike in for five, six miles and get to a really good spot. You should have those places where um, you can drive your truck anywhere you want. I think that's the beauty of our public lands is they're managed for multiple use. So um, 
if it's open to everybody all the time, then there's only certain people that are going to enjoy that. So. Oh, yeah, and the problem with this asshole is that... <laughs> you just don't like the helicopter comment. No, 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 I'm fine with the helicopter comment. This is ridiculous. But the problem with his perspective, in my mind, is like, if he had it his way, and I gather in his mind, everything should be unlimited access. Sure. If you like to hunt, you'd be screwed. Yeah, you well, have to have some sanctuary areas that give wildlife like a little bit of a break now and then. Well, I think it's not only the sanctuaries for those wildlife, but you know, he may be 65 and not doing that anymore. You know, I got a friend named Jim Posowitz who's 82 and he's still out there hoofing it. And you know, that's because he wants to do. Um, I think again, like you got to have those places to test our limits, you know, that are still a little bit younger and I like, can get that done. And I'm 42 now and I got to stay in shape or I'm not going to be able to do that. Um, but why is it one way for everybody? Like this, this, this dogma, right? It has to be only one way for somebody when these lands are managed for multiple use. And I think that's the bottom line of that question. Yeah. The no reason you tell this dude's kind of a prick is uh, the assumption that somehow like, you have greater access to public lands if you have Hollywood cronies. Oh, yeah. With their helicopters. Well, that's what it is. Like, uh, right? How right, do you have a one. helicopter without Hollywood Here, Here's one. I'd like to just quickly point out, too, that no matter how far you can drive in there, wherever you stop your vehicle, you're still going to have to hike for the good hunting. So no matter where that road ends, whether it's at the end where there's like the old logging pad or it's back two miles at the gate, just because you drove to the end doesn't mean there's an elk standing next to that yeah. old logging pad. On public, on like public when you start driving hunting. rigs and riding bikes, which... Oh, here's the helicopter right here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that was perfect. perfect. Hey, my chopper's here. <laughs> Time to go hunting. Yeah. <laughs> Can we finish this podcast en route to the hunt? We learned in Colorado from uh, Bill Andre, the game warden, that hikers, mountain bikers, ATVs, snowmobiles, they all have a certain impact on where you know the game is in relation to the road, right? So just because you can drive in there doesn't mean like you have better hunting than if you stopped at the gate yeah. and had to start hunting from there. It's just all going to move outward from there. Yeah. In Michigan, um, we would look for places where you had to, like, you could drive up to the river, but then you'd, cro- you'd bring a canoe and cross the river. Any little, on public land, no matter where you are, any little thing you can do to try to move yourself away from high-pressure areas is generally good. I mean, there's always exceptions, but, like, generally... Animals, huntable animals, are going to congregate more in places where they haven't gotten hunted. I know you probably don't want to talk about this anymore. No, I really don't. But like, <laughs> he may drive around all year, and just by happen circumstance, something runs across and he jumps out the truck and shoots it, which to me um, is not quite the hunting that we need to portray. Yeah, but the other thing is so pouty. He's like, I enjoy. This is a point that Jim Poswitz brought up. He's like, he's like saying. I enjoyed it when I could. Like, I enjoyed the, the remote public lands. I enjoyed the wilderness experience when I could. But now that I personally am too old to enjoy it, I now think that it should all end, that future generations should not be able to enjoy it so that I can have another 15 years of it. Yeah. It was great while I could use it. Now that I'm out of the running, let me in there. If not, it's going to waste. You know, heaven forbid you uh, 
preserve it for the next guy down the line to have those same adventures and hopes and dreams and experiences that you obviously enjoyed back in your prime. I got one more problem before with this you comment. before you quit taking care of yourself. He's saying it's a liberal thing. It's a liberal issue. Yeah, We're, like hunting. In, in, hunting in, is a liberal thing. You li- in reality, it'd be quite liberal to just let everybody on there. Oh. To willy nilly go whatever you want to do. Like it. It'd be much more of a conservative attitude to say, you know what? Let's keep it as is and protect it a little bit. Save, Boom. save what we have. All right, Matt Elliott. Yes, sir. Fixed. Bl- Here's a dude saying this: fixed blade, folding blade, or replaceable blade. What works best for what situation? Wow. Uh, I mean, blades are such a. It's such a personal thing. What works best for what situation? I can I can tell you that replaceable blade knives don't work well for hard use, like digging into joints. You're going to be left short-handed if you get into a survival situation with a replaceable blade knife. But they perform very well for tasks that require really precise work, like caping. Yep. Right. Uh, in a survival situation or on something massive, you really want to dig in and and debone it get really dirty a fixed blade is always the best choice it also is a good choice for something that you use multiple times on a hunt because it's easier to clean because there's no mechanism and folders are good for utility it depends on the shape of the there's so much more that goes into it right it's like shape of the blade shape of the handle length of the blade there's a lot more than just fixed folder replaceable but a, a folding blade is a good knife just to keep in your pocket have for general purpose utility like for me, I always have a folding knife in my pocket. I'll use it to do like cut tree limbs or open bag of mountain house or whatever. And then I have a fixed blade in my pack that only touches meat. That's exactly what I do. Yeah. Is um, yeah, I carry a folder like generally like, clipped in my pocket or someone accessible. Yeah. And I, the term I always use is like a utility knife. Mm-hmm. I like the kind that has the first inch or so serrated, then with a regular tip on it. Yeah. And use it for everything. And then in my pack, I keep a fixed blade knife for skinning and quartering and whatnot. Yeah. And I don't touch that thing. Yeah. I don't whittle sticks with it. I don't gouge out grooves and shit with it or dig, you know, roots out from right. under my tent. Yeah, it only comes out if you it just have yeah, something and it's out. like always sharp and always there. Mm-hmm. What what do you use the serrations for, if I might ask? Rope and whatnot. Yeah. 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 Or stuff where I don't want to mar up. Like if I'm doing something I don't want to mar up my the, the, the sharp part of my knife, I'll just use that for that. Yeah, but any kind of like cord, rope, whatever. Yeah. I'd get by fine without it. Right. Nice thing about serrations is even if it doesn't cut quite as well as a really sharp plane edge, it'll tear at least even when it's not yeah, sharp. That, anymore, that's right? kind of yeah. what I'm getting at. And yeah. then also when it I... Kinda it kind of outlasts. It does. Right? It does. It's yeah. not... The cutting performance isn't... I don't think is as good as a plain edge when it's first sharp, but it will last longer because of the tearing factor once it's not sharp. Anymore. Yeah, even if, if I do break an animal down with with my like utility knife, like my folder, I'll use that serrated part to like, you know, I used to saw joints on big animals. Now I just pop the joints, cut the joints. Right. I use that part of the knife to cut them and stuff yeah. because it just saves it longer. Yeah. And the best way to trash a knife, I think, is rubbing the rubbing the bone, rubbing the blade oh, yeah. across bone. Yeah. Yeah, I always give that caveat. People say, "Oh, how many how many animals can you do with this knife?" It's like, well, depends how you cut them up. If you're dragging a lot of bone, yeah, it's not going to go through as many. Yeah, or if you're like skinning the if you're skinning the skull cap out and you're working and you're doing all the work around the base of the 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 pedicle, yeah, not that many 
flathead you're screwdriver. Not gonna, you're not going to do that many deer with that knife. Flathead you know? screwdriver is the best thing for that. I, you know, oh, go ahead. I was going to have a follow-up question to the knife question. Oh, please. So fixed blade, backcountry, or even just on a, on a regular, let's say even if a day hunt, but do you carry, and if you do, what is your sharpening tool or system? Uh, we So Benchmade, we make this little sharpening tool called a Tactical Pro, and it's, it's basically like a little two-and-a-half-inch stick of ceramic, and at the end of it, it's got this carbide V. It's like two square pieces of carbide that are laid over the top of each other, so they make a V. Mm-hmm. And I'll just use that. It, really? One of those yeah. drag-through things? Yeah, yeah. But I, it can be also used as a steel? Like yeah, the, yeah. it's got a little bit of ceramic on it. also has a little groove in it if you want to use it for a hook cone. And your guys like it? Yeah, yeah. I like it a lot. I, I mean, no, I mean, but what about the guys who like... Uh, the guys that sharpen knives, because you guys have that deal where people send their knives. No, in. no, those. If guys, you ask one of those dudes what they thought of it, what would they say? They probably would think it was fine for field maintenance. I mean, I think they that would. that was kind of yeah. your question: is what yeah, am I yeah. what am I carrying around with me? No, and, no, and for it's sure. that right? Just a just a, and one of the things people run into with those particular sharpeners is they push too hard in them okay. when they're sharpening. It's just a really light, almost like just barely more than the weight of the knife as you pull it through. Because all you're doing, right? But most people know this. But if you look at your edge, like like straight up and down you're looking down the blade of your knife when it gets dull the edge is just rolled over yeah. so you're just trying to pull the edge back straight and yeah, then which is what you're doing with a sharpening steel right you're just straightening you're not removing steel with a butcher steel you're straight you're taking yeah. the curl out yep you guys had a word for that curl the wire or is that the, different? so the wire is different so the wires so back to like what the guys back at the factory do they're actually using belts and so they're sharpening on a belt and those belts are are truly removing material and as they remove it they pull the material up towards the edge of the knife mm-hmm. on that sanding belt and it creates something called a wire it's a good memory it creates this thing called a wire so if you looked at it on a micro at, at a microscopic level you would see this little like jagged edge on there and then you'd stick it on a buffing wheel and you basically break that off with a buffer. Gotcha. And that's when the knife gets truly sharp. Before that, it's, it's just going to tear through stuff. And, that, and then after they do that, they, then they cut newspaper. You'll see them doing that sometimes is to make sure that that edge is perfectly smooth. And they're doing that to test it. They are, like to make sure there's nothing wa- catching. It should walk through it very nice. It should, no yeah, it should, should yeah. go through it, no catch. Yeah. Jimmy Dorn, when you're out slaying all kinds of deer and elk, what, what, are, you, what are you packing around for uh, cutlery? <clears throat> I have a Havilon for... Gutting and then I just have a big old Bonner, uh, big heavy sharp knife for. But you use a replaceable and, blade for cutting up stuff. I do. Yeah. I do. Well, it's about, it's not as popular as some of the guys I hunt with, but then was it, you know, that cadaver blade so sharp. Just, oh, dude, yeah. Just let that and a Leatherman, and I feel like I can do pretty much anything. No, this is a, I think there's a good argument to be made for them. Arguments, like good argument made for them is you don't need to worry about knowing how to sharpen a knife. Yeah. I need, um, yeah, I need to know. They're that like bit. exceedingly dangerous. Yeah. Then you run into the issue of disposing of those things. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of guys just kind of jabbing into the ground. Mm-hmm. So it's like, then you're like toting around other ones. You right. can break them. But like for its purpose, they're great. Yeah. As a walk around knife, not so good. No, not so good. You can't torque it at all. You can't, if you get handsy with it put force on it it's it's not worth the shit yeah but if you're gentle with it and do what it's supposed to be do it works quite well um here's a tough one i don't want to get skunked on a hunt what tips can you give me so that i can definitely be successful (laughs) i don't know man 
That might be one of those deals where you have to uh, go on one of those 100% guaranteed cow elk hunts and pay for it. You got to pay for it. Oh, like 100% success rate hunts? But he's he's asking the wrong question, right? Like, like the payoff is you may shoot something. Like, the the reason I think most of us are going out there is for the actual hunt, which is, like, everything that leads up to that shot, right? So every single time I go out, I'm getting what I want. And, I mean, I get 100% kind of what I want. And then if I get an animal, it's on top of that. Now, with that sheep, if I hadn't shot that sheep, yes, that would have been a big part of not, like, not not fulfilling that yeah. uh, whole thing. Yeah, Land drew a, you know, basically a once in a lifetime bighorn sheep permit this past fall, and you hit it pretty hard. Fifteen days. Fifteen days. Yeah, I thought it wasn't maybe going to happen, but I, I will say, again, we've talked about this quite a bit. Is that I felt the pressure of that hunt, and then I wasn't kind of having fun because of that pressure, and then once I let that pressure go, like I was enjoying the hunts again, and like. That hunt and the place where I got to go chase that critter around, like, God, that made my whole season for me. And yeah. then that last little thing that happened. But don't act like you didn't want to get a ring. Oh, no, I did. I did. and that's, You I, did. I mean, and, you know, um, yeah. So I, I just, but if you're going out, like, if you want to be successful every single day, I think that's a, that's not, that's not a, um, a good bar to measure yourself right. by. But let's just say the fella, let's just say the fella didn't articulate his question quite like he wanted to. And he's just saying, like, what are some, tips like let's just say this and there's nothing wrong with this let's say there's a guy and you know he's got you know every year he gets a week off he's got a week off his primary thing is he wants to have the experience of you know killing his own meat that's like his primary thing he's more interested in what's going to happen after the hunt and during the hunt just really wants to have that happen and he's like i have no idea what's a good approach I would say, if, if that's the case, and I'm not condemning this at all, especially not nearly as vocally as land condemning oh, this poor fellow. I'm not condemning that at all. And I, I would You're say, putting it in a different context now, though. I would be looking at, I would be looking at uh, antlerless hunts. Hunts where, even if it wound up being a hunt where there's no antlered season in at all, and it's just an antlerless hunt, because that really reduces the amount of pressure that's out there. And another thing is, you might be hunting an area where there's, a, there's enough of a surplus of animals that they're actually actively trying to lower the population, which is sort of code, not a, a hardly concealed code for shitloads of critters on the ground right now. Most, most Department of Fish and Wildlife will uh, make available in their regulations, or at least on their websites, what the success rates are in different units in the state for each game species, too. So that's mm-hmm. a good place to look. And you're right, usually the, the antlerless hunts are the ones that have the highest success yeah. rates. Yeah, yeah, you can, you can go. That, that's the thing. You just, if you are looking at it like a long-term thing, Matt's right. I mean, you can find the published information. Like, I can tell you, a non... Like, you go look, and you'll find some of the lowest success rates are non-guided, non-resident archery elk hunts where it winds up being that you got i mean i'm not joking six seven percent success rate so if you're like i gotta make it happen and you look and you see a six or seven percent success rate that's not for you you're never gonna if you see 100 percent success rate it's probably something where it's like you know maybe it's like some mountain goat hunt there's 150 goats on the mountain they give out two tags you know, it's just like not something that's just going to generally come up. It's more of a once-in-a-lifetime hunt thing. I think if you see hunts where they're, 
Um, if you look and there's a hunt that's a 50, 60% success rate, that's a very high success rate. That's kind of saying like it's a pretty, pretty good hunt. This is all making you uncomfortable, Larry. No, I, 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 no. I think I think it's not making me uncomfortable. I think there's lots of other things that make that success too, right? Like doing a lot of pre-scouting of your area, um, and uh, you know, being out there and um, trying different strategies if things aren't working. I mean, there's, I think there's plenty of other things that go into that. Um, but I guess I was uncomfortable with that because I thought we were talking about like every single time you go out hunting, right? Like, and you're going to be successful. And I think that's a that's a bar you don't really want to put on yourself. Yeah, no, we wrote 700 pages about it. Yeah, the guidebook series. Yes. Um, but yeah, choosing easier species. I mean, certainly you're going to have better odds at killing a white-tailed doe than you do a cow elk. It's just easier. Yeah. This guy's saying, I feel like we've had this before. Why do you mainly rifle hunt? Is it because it is a pain in the ass to attempt to bow hunt with a camera crew? Largely, yes. Largely, yes. What do you think about that, Yanni? Takes a lot more time. Um, you got to have a camera crew that's like, here's the trick. This is a, this is a show business thing. Um, camera, everybody's out there to do their job, right? You're out there to hunt to the best of your ability. They're out there to film to the best of their ability. They are always under pressure between filming for a good show and getting their coverage and filming for a successful hunt. Those two things are not the same thing. Even though I argue to them, if you want to have something to film, let's get a shot at an animal and kill it. Then we'll have all kinds of stuff to film. Cutting it up, eating it, you know, but they don't see it that way. So camera guys are the uh, hunter's worst enemy. You don't agree with Not that? Not worst. Real bad enemy. I think camera guys are a real bad enemy. What about those times when the camera guy's like, oh. Spot game? Yeah. Yeah. That's the, he's, yeah that's, they, he's a friend. They, they do spot a lot of games. <laughs> <laughs> now, the reason we call but Giannis isn't a camera guy, uh. but he is the eagle uh. because he spots an extraordinary amount of game. That's great. A Latvian sharp eye. That's great. Dirt myth. He, I, the poor fella. I mean, he's working on it, but he's this, getting LASIK here, like in a month or so. so that, yeah, that I mean, might change. the poor, but the bastard's about blind too. So you got to like, you know, yeah. that that you know, I don't want to be too hard on him. But um, no, camera guys, they want to get the shots, man. You know, you'll be like all hunkered in, and then you, and then all of a sudden you turn around and realize they're just standing there because they can't see and they're doing their job. But you've also always been like a pragmatic hunter where you're like, unless it's better for the hunt or better for me and I can choose rifle over bow, I'm going to choose rifle. Yeah, I'm interested in bow hunts that are only bow hunts. Like if, there's a, if, I, if I'm doing a hunt and you're allowed to use anything, I'm probably going to go with um, what's comfortable to me and what has the greatest efficacy. You know, like I seldom... Uh, I have plenty of ways in which I kind of handicap myself. But yeah, I seldom um, think to myself like, oh, you know, it'd be a lot more challenging if I brought my bow. I'm generally like, if it's a rifle hunt, I'm going to use my rifle. I bow hunt when it's an archery season. Yeah. And a lot of like serious bow hunters are just going to bring their bow. Matt, 
we're going to go bear hunting this spring, and this guy can't decide if he's bringing his bow or his gun, even though it's a rifle hunt. I'm having, time, having a hard time with that, yeah. You've been talking about it with your yeah. wife and your therapist? <laughs> <laughs> I was telling you, we were in, on an Alaska hunt, and I, I brought my bow, and there we had a rifle there, and I just, I had originally set out, this, this is what I'm trying to figure out, is like, am I going to intend on the rifle hunt or the bow hunt? Because what I don't want to do is intend on a bow hunt. In Alaska, I, I intended on bow hunting. I had in mind that I was going to take a bear with a bow. And there was a, a moment in time when the guy said, do you want to use a rifle? The guy I was with, I said, no. Well, yeah, I, I don't want to use a rifle because I, I would rather ha- go home without the bear and, and feel the success of the bow hunt and the experience back to defining success than to shoot the bear with a rifle and not have gotten what I came for, which wasn't necessarily because when the bear. you set your mind out to do something you're going to do it yeah yeah at least see it through and then your wife busted your balls about it she was yeah she well i got home and she's like what what do you mean like where i want i would have loved the bear rug yeah she wa- she wanted to have a bear rug but we didn't discuss that in advance yeah so and I, you and you uh shattered her dreams i did with that stupid I bow and arrow i shattered i shattered <laughs> her dreams uh, can I can I tell a quick story? Please, like, yeah, tell, so, long, tell a long so, one. So, so, so archery, you're thinking archery versus rifle and the cameraman thing. I, I spent a few years in Alaska doing some guiding on the fishing side. And I remember I had my clients in the boat one time. We look over and there's some guys on the bank with a camera crew. And they're catching Chinook. They're hooking Chinook on conventional tackle. And then dragging them over to this beach pulling them up and then hooking a fly. No. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. No. Hooking a fly into the Come fish on. and releasing it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then And then rolling camera hooked up on fly rods. You're shitting no, me. No, not shitting you at all. I think that there's, yeah. Not at all. That's a little bit sad. Yeah, it was terrible. So what kind of analogy? You thinking about shooting one with a rifle and then uh, acting like you shot it with a bow? Absolutely not. Lay the bow across <laughs> it. <laughs> that certainly happens, though. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's, yeah, I mean, there's immense, yeah, I mean, there's just like, I think people even do stuff they don't, that they would find distasteful when there's certain amounts of pressures on you. I think that like one of the one of the nice things about the setup we have doing our show is we've kind of just through experience like alleviated or steered clear and learned to avoid a lot of those pressures that make you feel like you like need to somehow perform. Like there's no company, you know. There's no company that we work with that would ever be like, hey, man, we really need you to pick it up and shoot a gigantic buck. It's just like not something, that, you know what I mean? It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I wouldn't be open to the conversation anyways, but I think it's. I think some people maybe look at it that way when they're kind of like looking at sort of the industry or whatever, that you sort of need to make your name on like shooting giant shit. I'm sure some people probably have you know, made a name for themselves because they are phenomenal hunters. Um I never made the claim to be one. People want to see th- things that are more relatable, I think, anymore, more approachable. It's like sometimes failure is appealing in some way on a hunt. It's like this person that kicked off this conversation in some ways. Like you don't necessarily need you don't necessarily need success, or at least from the, the question before. Success can be defined in a lot of ways, and, and for a lot of us, like we don't have success, uh, often don't have success. And so when I watch a TV show and somebody's just knocking everything down, they're always chasing it, just it's harder to relate to. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I find that um, when we got into this, we were very reluctant about running uh, what we call skunkers, episodes that you don't get anything. And... uh 
and the first time we ever put a skunker up, I was petrified. I was like, man, it can't, this can't be a show. No one's going to. And people loved it because they just thought it was different to see like a skunker episode. Because they're like, dude, most times I go hunt, I don't get anything. I'm like, that's true with everybody in the world. Well, you know, growing up, it's like archery deer season would start October 1. We'd hunt pretty hard with our bows all through archery season. Then November 15th would come around and you had a 10-day rifle season. You'd hunt pretty hard for the rifle season. After that, you'd hopefully pick it back up and get out a few more times with your bow until January 1. If you got a deer, you were it was good. If you got two deer, you were kicking ass after many, many, many days in the field. You know? Yeah. To have a deer come into range was a big night. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one or two days. Along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever i've been shopping around on fast growing trees and i am fixing to get me a couple spruce trees for my yard right now they have some of the best deals online like up to half off on select plants our listeners get an additional 15 percent off their first purchase when using code meat eater at checkout visit fastgrowingtrees.com and use code meat eater at checkout for an additional 15 percent off fastgrowingtrees.com code meat eater offer is valid for a limited time minimum purchase may be required terms and conditions apply clean and protect your firearms with riptide armory riptide a veteran founded business it's dedicated to producing american-made cleaning chemicals and also dedicated to creating american jobs and that commitment is embodied in every product that's bottled, labeled, and shipped from their Arvada, Colorado facility. Safe for all firearm types and surfaces. Embrace the power of American ingenuity and protect your firearms with the best. Visit RiptideArmory.com. Decked Drawer Systems. Their products let you store and transport anything and everything to and from whatever you are doing. I have been using a deck system for years. I would not want to drive a truck without a deck system in it. You can clear the clutter right out of your cab. No more tripping over duct tape, jumper cables, toe straps. You put all that stuff in the deck system. Get rid of the random tubs and bins. You get out more, get more done, spend your time doing what you want to do when you have all your stuff organized and ready to go where it should be, all tucked away in your deck system. I've always loved decked, as is, but it's even better now because they just redesigned their drawer system and storage cases from the ground up. They got the Deco case line. These cases are as tough if not tougher than Pelican case or Go boxes. Totally waterproof and dustproof. You can literally run over them in your truck and they will be fine. High quality latches and handles make them really easy to use. They look great. They are made in the USA. To check it out, go to decked.com slash meat eater. Get yourself free shipping. Almost had a shot. No shit. You almost had a shot. Yeah, dude. So close. You know, it's like, sweet. 
Yeah, you were invigorated. So I think yeah, there's a lot of stuff. You know what though? It's still like that, except we just don't you don't see it. Oh, of course it's still like that for everybody out there. Yeah. It's like Facebook. Like people put on their best face on Facebook, right? Like yeah. you don't you don't see very often somebody like like talking about how bad things were, you know, that day. It's always like your best foot forward, and so that's like a lot of this stuff. Yeah, it's like here's me in my bathroom yeah. realizing the toilet paper's all gone. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to think of what a, a proper, what an appropriate avenue Send of action. <laughs> no, it's, it's like, here's me on vacation. Here's a good one, man. This is contentious. I'm going to talk about it for a quick second, though. How would a wall across the Mexican border impact wildlife? Whoo! Now, I want to preface this. Note this feller is not, it does not say, how would a wall across the Mexican border impact jobs? Okay? He's not saying, how would a wall across the Mexican border impact international relations? He's not saying that. How would a wall across the Mexican border impact wildlife? Um, so, Pulling that question completely outside of its uh, of the broader implications of the wall, just speaking of wildlife, it would be there's a handful of species in that area. There's, there's three large predators in that area that uh, move back and forth between Mexico and the U.S. Uh, mountain lions, black bears, jaguars, and like as we speak, there are jaguars in, in the U.S. They come up into Arizona, and um, and you have you know of course the, the you know it could be the Mexican wolf coming back and forth. Um, people are you know there's a lot of arguments to be made for and against having more jaguars in the U.S. Uh, you know I tend to really love the idea of it. If you did the wall, you're gonna whatever's gonna happen down the road with jaguar recovery is gonna not happen because the jaguars that are coming in to the U.S. are coming from Mexico. At this point, it's always been males. It's been like far wandering males. It could wind up in Arizona, New Mexico, West Texas. So that wouldn't happen anymore. If in fact you had like, if you did the impossible and had sort of this, this, um, this like impenetrable wall extending across the entire border, which I think that you know is is not going to happen in our lifetime. I don't think. I think most people would say that just the financial, you know, just the the burden of building that financially is not going to happen. But yeah, man, it would be uh, it would be not good for um, any large mammal, and it would really impede jaguar recovery, and it would impede genetic exchange, you know, across, it'd be like you're, anywhere you go and make an impenetrable barrier, um, you're going to really impede genetic exchange between animals. Again, just want to clarify, I'm not, this isn't a political question, it's an ecological question, and uh, you can go find a lot more out a lot more about that. I remember years ago when I was working on my Buffalo book, I went to a, a sort of an international bison conference, which means it had people from Mexico, it had people from uh, Canada, and, and a lot of people from the U.S. And I went to a lecture where a guy was lecturing on the potential for uh, recovery of bison or buffalo, and, and he also addressed the idea of a, of, of a border wall and what that would mean for in the future as we look to expand and recover big game populations. Anyone else want to add to that? I'm just curious, are there animals that use it currently as a migration route? Will it, would it shut anything down that's already taking place and doing well? Oh, like things that are actually, already kicking ass? Yeah, are, things know, that are actually going back I don't know if it would. I imagine you probably always see some lessening, but I don't know that there's like a population that's, that if there's a population of animals that's like good now 
and would all of a sudden become bad with a wall. I can't think of an example like that. The thing you most hear about when that subject comes up is you most hear about jaguars. Um, it's just a matter of time until a female, you know, a female jaguar is going to come across, and and you're going to have uh, you're going to have some animals. There's, I guess, I I could be wrong, but this book that came out, it's like a, a bunch of the most influential uh, trail cam photos taken. It's a collection of trail cam photos from around the world. In there is a trail cam photo of a jaguar in the snow, and the caption says it's the only image of a jaguar in the snow. And it was taken in Arizona. Can't speak to Jaguars. I don't know a whole heck of a lot about Bad them. motherfuckers. Are man. they? Yeah. <laughs> big, big cat. My kids know, they know uh, a bad mofo, but they don't know what it actually stands for. for. They talk a lot about bad. <laughs> they talk about a, a lot of animals being bad <laughs> mofos. The English teacher's going to send home a note. <laughs> Jimmy needs to know what bad mofo means. My kid's really struggling right now. He learned, he heard, like he overhears a lot just because he spends a lot of time around sure, fellas, you know. Sure. And he picked up that there's a thing called bullshitting and he picked up there's a thing called the bullshitter and he's not clear on why it's okay for bullshitting but to be a bullshitter is very bad bad. (laughs) (laughs) he was seeking some clarification on that recently that's awesome he's picking that up that there is a difference (laughs) because i was yeah i used to say to him like what it was is you know like kids you want to carry them on your shoulders because it's easier to carry them on your shoulders but with mine, they always got to the point where they didn't want to do that anymore. They like really wanted to be on your hip. And I would say, you want to be down here so you can BS. And so he'd just say like he wants to BS, which meant he wants to be, he just thought it was like a term for being oh, yeah, on my yeah, hip. Yeah. And then one day, he like put together that BSing was bullshit. And then he got to hearing like, oh, he's such a bullshitter. I can't stand that guy. Right? That kind of <laughs> sentence. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. blowing his mind. <laughs> Here, I thought bullshit was good. Bullshit, that's good. It's bullshitters. Hey, uh, Jimmy, don't hear a good one for you. Oh, this this might be good for you because I think that you're you're experiencing the pizza business. Okay. It's gonna cross over. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Do you have any tips as far as the process of curing and smoking? He's referring to meats. Mm-hmm. I've read cold smoking can cause botulism and make people sick, so I'll be sure to know what I'm doing. You ever deal with any botulism? No botulism outbreaks at Belltown Pizza? Absolutely zero <laughs> botulism-free. <laughs> like, it's a botulism-free zone? It is a botulism-free zone. You know, I don't know much about smoking. I do know that it's really good to have a friend who's really good at smoking, and you just kind of hand him everything and then get it back later. Yeah. I do safe practices. Matt, do you smoke meat much? I don't. I sm- Well, fish, mostly. Yeah. Yep. I tried to smoke some cheese the other day, and I, I opened up my smoker and... Had a big puddle of. Try to sell it on the bottom. Too hot. Not too hot. Yeah, my my little chief. I don't think It'll, if somebody has a tip on how to smoke cheese and a little. I'm guessing chief, it involves a lower temperature. Yeah, but I don't. It's this thing's one of those like you plug it in or you unplug it. Yeah, no, yeah, I, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's all we had. I need like, a more sophisticated. When I was a smoker, kid, it was like yeah. if you didn't have a little chief, you weren't smoking. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna answer this without answering it. I'll say that um, th- there's a science to this. Okay, these these are not like botulism and other foodborne ailments are not mysterious anymore um there we have very concrete understanding of what temperatures you need to avoid how many minutes things can be at such and such temperature um how long you you know what you need to do to make stuff safe it can be as simple as making cold smoked salmon that the product never gets above a certain temperature 
should it get above that temperature and become you know, a, a bacterial breeding ground, then you need to make sure to pass through a medium threshold and go up into where you then kill anything by getting it plenty hot enough. Um, so my advice is just to get like a good book that breaks this stuff down and follow the guidelines. Because it's not, it's not like a thing where it's like you don't play it by feel. I mean, th- these things are very spelled out. There are food safety um, guidelines that you should follow. I feel that some of it take a little bit too far. Like if you go and look at, uh, which is a good thing. So, some things take it too far, which means you're going to be extra safe. Some of the stuff I ignore a little bit. Like for instance, if you if you were to go on to a, a you know a, 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 some websites, you look up like I want to make my own jerky. You'll find that they always say like, well, you need to to quickly boil the meat before you make jerky, or you need to then put it in the oven afterward and bring it up to 165 degrees, right? I just like, don't do that. But these are people who are telling you, here's how to be absolutely safe all the time. It's the same people who don't uh, let their kids taste cookie dough because there's a raw egg in there, right? You're never going to, you know, you're never going to regret doing it except for like a, a, a flavor way. But it could be overkill in certain instances. Yeah, but this is coming from a guy who's gotten sick by not following basic guidelines. I mean, me, you know, I've gotten sick by not following basic guidelines on stuff. But um, it's just not that hard. Like, if you look at how to, like, do whatever you're fixing to do, like, curing, smoking, if you look at how to do it well, these aren't, like, mysterious things that are not difficult. I think the one area where you kind of can get into trouble is with a lot of, like, you know, like you're saying, cured stuff. Um where you have a, a item that's essentially raw sitting around for a whole long time, you should follow some basic guidelines, which suggests that it is risky is, you know, a lot of restaurants just aren't set up to do that kind of stuff. Like you're not making your own oh, prosciutto. No, 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 no. I wouldn't take the risk. I know it to be done, but just not in my place. Prosciutto we buy, open, like, uh, buy from a, a reputable purveyor, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, just the, the labor involved in actually manufacturing that product would probably be cost prohibitive anyhow. So, I got a buddy that does make sausage. He has a restaurant, does produce his own charcuterie. Mm-hmm. Is is um, you know, spent a lifetime around that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he, I don't want to name him, but he's remarkably sort of blasé about the whole thing. He's like, I watch out for black fuzzy mold. Barring mm-hmm. that, I'm eating it. Right on. <laughs> so, but yeah. Anything to add, Yanni? Nope. No. Okay. I've only made burger and steaks from the deer I've killed. What recommendations would you, would you make to begin the journey into more adventurous cuts and meals? Giannis. Good question. Want me hear, you want to hear it again? No, no, I got it. Um, the two that come to mind would be Shanks. You could do either whole or asabuco, meaning you just take your shank and cut it into discs and then brown it and braise it. Or you can take the whole shank and just brown it and braise it. And I like those. Or And the, the other one, too, that I'll mention is the neck. I like both of these cuts because they're super easy. Like once my wife figured out how easy it is to braise, this is like now her like go-to thing because you don't have to think about it. It's like in the morning, like after breakfast, you're like, all right, quick brown into the crock pot or into the Dutch oven. And don't want to think about it again until five. 
Yeah, it'll be ready in four hours. It'll be good still in 12 hours. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. We had a neck roast the other day. A lot of times, I'll be like, just put it in the crock pot, and I'll figure out how to finish it at five when I get home. Like, I'll have like this hot, seasoned, well-cooked, falling apart, falling off the bone meat, and she like doesn't want to take it to like the final you know, presentation. Yeah. But I like can roll, whatever, whatever I can roll in with it. and I looked in there and I was like, hmm, you know, we've never done classic pot roast. So I'm like, all right, some carrots, a few potatoes, like half an onion, finish that off and then through like side of peas, we had like classic pot roast. It was great. Yeah. I used to look, when I looked in my freezer, I used to like to see all the like loin and then your sirloins, you know, like basically your back leg cuts and your loin. I'd be like, man, there's the good shit. You know, the rest of the stuff is just stuff we're going to eat. But that's like the prime. Mm-hmm. I now look, I'm a little bummed when I don't see shanks, necks, all that stuff that I used to many years ago. Kind of be a little bit apprehensive about because I thought they were difficult to handle. Yeah. Because there's not, like, if you take any of the non-prime parts of your so any part of the front leg, the neck, the, the knee down, the shank cut, and the ribs, and you brown, you put a bunch of salt and pepper on that piece of meat, brown it in oil, put it in a covered pot, and cover it just up to the top with stock or water, and throw in a handful of garlic and a splash of wine, and put it in your oven at 300 degrees. It's like, it's just all good. And then you can do anything with it. Right. Eat it like that, tacos sandwiches it just doesn't matter um yeah man i've over the years i've just really changed my stuff around and i've actually gotten away from doing steaks like it's been years since i've actually had like venison steaks on the grill because now i almost all those steak something that you would cut into a steak i'll just keep it whole and sear it bring it up to 125 degrees let it rest and then slice it, and I feel like you're getting a much you know, moister, richer, better product that way, and less is drying out than if you have individual steaks that are getting cooked on all sides. Oh, yeah. I know. I, I, I rarely do steaks. And when I first, started, you know, I first started cutting up deer, like we always cut our own deer up when I was growing up, and we would cut them up, and we would cut, well, if you did a deer, we'd cut burger meat for the grinder, and then every other piece of meat, we not just meant it for steaks, we cut it into steaks. The whole loin, we'd cut them one-inch slices, back legs, cut them all into steaks. And you'd have burger, packs that said burger, packs that said steaks. And that's how we cut everything. I don't cook deer steaks anymore now. And then in the transitional period, when I still would cook like steaks, and then some roast, we would mark all that meat SR, S slash R, which meant steak roast. Not my initials, but it meant like steaks or roast, meaning you could pull it out and cut your steaks later. What I was thinking at the time was, if you're going to cut it into steaks, why not just do it later? Because this way you have less exposed surface area and less edges to get freezer burned. You know, because like the meat protects itself when it's in a large block. So we do that. But now I don't. I don't. I never cook steaks anymore. I cook whole muscle groups and then slice it. Because just you get a much better product that way. Lastly, I think the thing I've gotten into the last few years that's an easy way to branch out a little bit is to uh, make a sausage. Yeah, it's really not that difficult. There's some pretty easy recipes out there that I mean, if you have your burger or your stuff you're about to grind into burger, you might only be adding you know 
half dozen ingredients and you can choose to do it bulk. You know, you don't have to stuff it into casings. You have to be an idiot to not know how to make sausages. I mean, not to not know. Okay, I'll say this. You'd have to be an idiot to not be able to figure out how to make sausages. Not that you already know, but anyone who can drive a car, for instance, could if you have it in you to drive a car, you absolutely have it in you to make a sausage. You're not running up against. We're not talking about like a like you'd ha, you'd find that you didn't have like the cognitive abilities to make sausage. It's just not that hard. You want to add to that? Um, I think something that totally blew my mind this year is carpaccio. Yeah. And like like we were just talking about cured meat and that kind of stuff, and like what's the techniques and to slice a piece of meat, pound it out, put a little. We used a Himalayan salt that this friend of mine, Eric Hess, had uh, smoked in his smoker. A little Ooh. pepper. Smoked his own salt? Oh, dude. It was, I mean, you don't no, want to use I much like, of it, but it's I super like that good. I like yeah. And then, uh, and then a little baby arugula on there and some Parmesan, and then you just eat it like that. And like I was expecting to totally be sick the next day or even that night. And just talking about it right now, I'm like salivating about it. it. Like It literally blew my mind. And so everybody I'm talking to you know, about like how the hunt go this year, I'm like, oh, you got to do carpaccio. So, bighorn carpaccio. Well, and even if, I, I mean, I'm going to try it on everything. Oh, you yeah, did, no, it did it with the bighorn. did it with the bighorn. That blew, I mean, that's just, yeah, that's a good. sweeter meat anyways. But uh, Have I mean, you found that to be true? Have you been enjoying eating your bighorn? Yeah, I mean, I, sh- I shot a U 14 years ago, um, and it's that very similar. It's like a sweeter taste, you know. It's pretty lean meat, um, but a lot sweeter um, than anything I've ever tried. So, yeah, it's delicious, but again, that carpaccio. Like it's, and it's just this weird thing. Like you're eating, I mean, dark, raw meat. And then he starts telling me that he just, like when he's out in the field and he's boning something up, he just starts taking chunks. Like he doesn't even pound them out or anything. He just sticks them in his mouth. Yeah. I, I think, like, I, I've never done that. I don't know if I can bring myself to do that, especially when I'm out in the field and that might, you know, make things dip more difficult. But boy, and the kids ate it and they loved it. So I, I, I encourage anybody to try carpaccio. At least look it up. Yeah, me and Remy um, did. Tar Paccio with tar. Okay. And then we did um, tartar. Steak tartar with tar. Okay. So tar, tartar. tartar. <laughs> and tar Paccio. Tar, tar cubed. Like, this goes back to that dude asking about food safety issues earlier. You're never going to go on a government website and find where it says, hey, man, this is yeah. good idea. Good idea is to eat yourself some raw deer meat. Right. Right. No one's going to tell you it's okay. But if you're eating ungulate, like raw ungulates, I, there's nothing, that, I, I can't think of what it would be that would happen to you. Yeah. I've had food poisoning twice, and both times it was from cooked onions. There you go. Yeah. Watch out for that shit. Right. <laughs> both times. I thought, uh, bighorn sheep, we were talking about this the other night yeah. at, at the Sheep Foundation yeah. event. Uh, I think it's my favorite meat. I, I haven't, I've only eaten it once because I got it from... Yeah, there's, not, there's not a ton of them floating around out a little there. bit, and yeah. he said, he wants some bighorn sheep steak, and I was expecting it to taste like kind of like mutton or something, yeah. you know? It is absolutely unbelievable how good it is. Years ago, my girlfriend killed a bighorn. She drew a tag, and we went out and got a bighorn, and uh, I made a lot of corned bighorn, just I like the sound of it. The same way I like tar, 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 corn bighorn. Yeah. I thought it had a ring to it, Yeah, yeah. you know? Um, most people don't associate like a liter like alliteration with good taste, but I'm just such a sucker for a, a, a well phrased dish that I, that I, I tend to gravitate towards things that have a ring to it. You know, I thought I'd hit the promised land. Remember when I moved to Bozeman? I hadn't been there but a few days, and 
my buddy Brendan Burns calls me up and goes, uh, you got any room in your freezer? I got a bighorn sheep. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah. He had a client that didn't want the meat. Yeah. Yeah. You know, guy was flying and had taken like a quarter. He had three quarters. His freezer was full. He had had a good season. I'm just like, dude, bring it on now, you know? Make room. It was good stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, and that's the kind of stuff I like. Kind of had a special little box in the freezer. It's like every so often, you know, I worked it for two years. I was starting but yeah, to, that'll never happen again. I was starting to date my wife uh, the first time I shot that that you, and so it's that it's smaller. You don't get as much meat, and like she loved it so much that she was. It wasn't that like parsing it out like you know once like a month or once every couple of weeks. It was like like it was like it was like this gonna last forever. And I finally I, I was enjoying that she liked it so much, but like hey babe, we gotta slow down on this thing a little bit. And once she slowed down, then we got married. Dating tips. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a, I'm going to read a funny one that no one needs to respond to. I just think it's funny. And then we're going to jump into one that I do want responses from. So this guy's like, uh, what's up with the epidemic of flat brim and white sunglass wearing, energy drink pounding Western hardcore hunters that seem to be taking over these days? I'm a young guy in my early 30s, but I feel like a grumpy old bastard every time I see another social media post from these dudes. there's a question kind of in there later but that's just funny all right here's going are there any animals you will not hunt for moral reasons now he's saying anything's fair game bald eagles his example house cats domestic dogs whatever what is something you just would feel too torn up inside to pull the trigger jimmy dorn uh probably i'd shoot darn near anything in north america i don't really have a desire to shoot a bear for whatever reason, I don't know. I just look at it and it's no. Just, he's saying you got a, so you have a you have a desire to shoot a bald eagle. Oh heck no! <laughs> well, you listen to the question. Oh, I apologize. Everything is fair game in this hypothetical world. Okay. So the list would be too long. Right. You can't list yeah. all the things you have no desire to shoot. Okay. Well, I missed the question then. No, no, you, you were doing it, but you were doing like a game animal. Oh, is there any animal that I wouldn't shoot? Yeah, the, the list would be very long. Uh, It'd be like ah. Uh, not my neighbor. hamsters. Yeah, my neighbor's. <laughs> yeah, my neighbor's dog that barks too much. Many dozens of species of whales. I suppose yeah. on their list. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. But let's just take it like game animals. You don't have any desire to hunt bears. I do not. I couldn't tell you why. I just don't. I just look at it's it. Common. And it's not something it's that common, I want to. I just don't. I just there's something about them. Just don't want to do it. Pretty like much half the stuff in Africa I wouldn't shoot that either. Just yeah. don't. Just don't know why. Well, I, with bears, it is. It's like I like um. Like, you know, if I'm out hunting, you know, you see a deer, right? You see, like, a whitetail. I'm like, let's go get that deer. Oh, yeah. But when I see a bear, I'm kind of, like, torn between going and getting it or observing it. Yeah. I do, like, but I still, I like to hunt bear, and I continue to hunt bears. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I do understand there's sort of a, it's just different. You know, and you could try all day long to, to act like it's not different, but for a lot of people, bears occupy a different space in, in their imagination. Never bought a tag. It's another thing. Just, really? Yeah. It's never, just like never, it's never, uh, it's never, I like looking at them for sure. I just, but you just don't never see really necessarily. And bald eagles? Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> Takes red, like white, jump. and blue bird of freedom. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I kind of like them around. <laughs> bird of freedom. Bald eagles got a, bald eagles are, like they're not doing good PR management. They're breeding too much. Yeah. Because the, like a lot of people in this country no longer like, oh my God, a bald eagle, right? 
They're letting themselves, they should play the long game and slow down on reproduction in order to maintain that special yes. status. It's a little of, bit more DDT. And like, yeah, yeah. I'll come my place and sell these Alaska. <laughs> there might be 20 of them in a tree. Yeah. You know, and I bring people up there for the first couple minutes. They're like, oh my God, an eagle. Yeah. Oh my God, an eagle. Then later they're like, hey, it's yeah. another look, eagle. Look, another eagle. <laughs> yeah, I saw that happen before my eyes when I first started guiding on the Eagle River. You know, it's like your job as a fishing guide, especially if the fishing slows, like, oh, check that out. Check that out. See that? Look at that plant, whatever. Keep them distracted. Yeah. You see a bald eagle and everybody, ooh, ah. And then like at, by the, when did I quit? Like 2008 or nine or whatever. And just be like, bald eagle. Like, huh? You know, like nobody even cared. Yeah. It's like you're saying, everybody's just seeing them everywhere. They're like, oh yeah, we have those back in New Jersey now too. You yeah. know? I remember, I remember like in Michigan when we got done ice fishing, and he left some, uh, you know, chubs or shiners out on the ice, and we got done pulling tip-ups. And I remember one day looking out there, and, like, you know, it's a lake with houses and cottages all around it. And looking out, there's a couple bald eagles out there standing there eating our chubs. And I'm like, you know, something just changed <laughs> for that bird. Like, now he's right in front of my house, you know. Good for them. Good for them. Um, land? I, 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 Let, let's, let's scrap the whole anything in the world like cats and whatnot. Just say like game animals. Is there a game animal you don't go after? A lot of guys don't want to hunt lions. Uh, lions. I would love to. I mean, I've been on a couple of hunts. I've never shot one. But you like, you're uh, open to hunting I'm lions. Definitely. Um, I think I'm with. I buy a bear tag every single year, but I've yet to pull the trigger on one. And I think it's partly because I do just think they're kind of a special species. I'm not saying I would never do it, um, but I think wolves are one of those things I don't think I would ever shoot. I think I, it would be such a special encounter for me to see one in the woods that like like that green fire you know and stuff that that Aldo Leopold Aldo Leopold talked yeah. about like just to be able to witness that like I've heard them a lot seen lots of tracks um and I think I've been fairly close to them but I've never seen them so I, I mean what's the green fire it's like the this that intense like the way they have that look in their eye it's like, some it's some San County Almanac that's what you're referring to, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like there's a story about like wolves and they can how like, to think like a mountain, right? Yeah, yes, and like how the mountain doesn't have the wolves on there anymore, and um, so the deer eating. I mean, it's it's a longer story. And this than is that. coming from a guy whose job was to shoot wolves. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I just, I don't know. I think they're pretty iconic and pretty cool, you know. And um, I know that we need to manage those wolves, and it's just not going to be me. Yeah, I'm at a similar place. Like, there's a. I, I mean, I could talk about a ton of things I have mixed emotions on, but. Wolves are a funny one because, you know, I go out and get a wolf tag when I'm in areas. Yeah. It's just like, I sort of think, like, yeah, you know, someday I could see that I would get a wolf, kill a wolf. Um, but then on the, the handful of opportunities I had to go after one, when I'm looking at one, I don't even, like, really remember that I was thinking about it. I'm just kind of, like, looking at it. Right. You know, it's just, and I still have, you know, I still imagine sometime in the future maybe I will. I was elk hunting in Montana this year and kept seeing wolf tracks. I'm kind of like, man, I should have gotten a wolf tag. You know, they're all over. And then being like, but if one came out, you'd probably feel like you did every other time when you had an opportunity to go after one or had an opportunity to, to take a crack. Just an and, apex yeah, predator. You know? Yeah, and, it, and it's like, I, you know, I, I'm a ardent supporter of uh, state game agencies having the right to manage them as, oh, a, same you know, here. as same a sustainable here. resource. Glad they're on the landscape, but they yeah. need to be managed. like to have them on the landscape, like to have them managed as a big game animal. Yep. Um, and I understand that we're not going to have them everywhere that they were before, but there's some places where it'll work and I support making it work in those places. But 
I just like I and, and I was looking ahead. I'm always like, oh yeah, that'd be great. And then when it happens, it just like it just something dissolves. You know, that could change too, because you know, like I, I went from being a very ambivalent mountain lion hunter to being like really wanting to get a mountain yeah. lion bad over time. Yeah. You look at enough of those tracks in the snow, and after a while, like, dude, I want to get one of these lions so bad, man. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a question for you. So, it's, like, speaking of lions, like, their management's kind of been all over the board, and now there's like these lion hunters that like super care about them and they have like and there's like the montana lion hunters you know like that's that's yeah we're talking about mountain lions or cougars or pumas just for people and so like they've really gotten engaged in the management of them right like do you think at some point we're gonna have like wolves unlimited or something you know these guys that are like really good at howling on ridges they like fall in love with that species because they're probably one of the hardest ones to hunt kill one in every hundred that they call in yeah but like but you know but i mean like a really like i mean i don't know i don't, I don't it know could if, be if you'd have said that if you'd have said in the 50s that people were going to be where they're at now with mountain lions right you know who like you know when, when states are using quota systems and have female mortality quotas on mountain lions that shit's coming from houndsmen that's what i'm saying like that like it's the that's who like cares about those things more than almost anybody Dude, right? it was houndsmen that said let's stop eradication efforts on lions Let's treat lions like a big game animal, yeah. a sustainable, renewable resource. That came from houndsmen. So uh, the question that was is, not coming from New Jersey cat ladies. Do you think, <laughs> maybe? No, never mind. Um, but do you think that's going to happen with pools? I mean, like, I mean, we look five years down the road. Yeah, I yeah. think I think I like see it. Yeah, I can think if if we get where we need to be, which is putting you know putting wolf management in the hands of. You know, putting wolf management in the hands of you know people who are operating on a scientific doctrine and not you know some kind of subjective opinion. Um, And we have wolf hunts that go on, and we have sustainable populations of wolves in places. And you're going to have guys that like really figure it out, and they start to admire them as a game animal, and they're like really into the chase. And they want it being like a houndsman. There's a lot of houndsmen out there who've killed, who've been running lions their whole life, and they've killed a lion. Right. It's like being around them. Yeah. So you, I, I could totally see you got a guy that like likes to hunt wolves, likes to call wolves, now and then kills a wolf, wants to make sure that the wolf hunting stays good. Sure. I wouldn't be surprised. That's a foundation of conservation in a lot of ways, right? This is the value of wildlife. So people, people have to appreciate them uh, in order to really want to conserve them. And eventually it becomes that state. It's like, um, you know, a lot of the reason the wolves are in such a terrible place is because they haven't been able to be appropriately managed. So they're in this dog, no pun intended, but like they're in a dog fight between yeah. two groups are pulling them back and forth. And all the while, it's like the state departments, are, before they were allowing conservation some of these states are going out with helicopters and gunning down whole packs of wolves because they're just running amok you know in these management units instead of being able to be appropriately managed and once we get to a state where we can appropriately manage all of these different areas where the wolves live people start to appreciate them instead of them being seen as an adversary you know i was joking about eagle pr how they let themselves get too abundant but um a thing that that I think happened with wolves and why we have a lot of problems socially with wolves and a lot and why it's become such a a thing that causes people to go into these like diametrically opposed corners on wolf introductions and and wolf hunting is that I think some states were initially very reluctant right to do wolf reintroductions and then they got on board based on certain assurances 
saying, we're going to do this. Here's what, how we're going to define recovery. When we've, reached a cover, here, when we've reached recovery, here's some steps we're going to take to ease tensions between livestock growers, other interests, right? Between big game hunters, once they reach recovery, we're going to you know, strike this balance and, and try to maintain you know, this number of animals. And then down the road, the, the, the recovery objective just kind of like keeps moving and moving and moving and becomes an unachievable target. So you've got, state, you've got some state agencies who were with it and then later kind of felt like they got screwed because they went along with this plan once they were sold like a certain idea and then we've really changed what the idea looks like to now where it doesn't matter how many wolves we have, we're never going to say that they're recovered. You know, we're always going to like move the carrot out of your, out of your reach. And so I, I think that that really has kind of made a thing where wolves have unnecessarily had to become this thing of like this, I, you love them or hate them, right. you know? And I think there's a lot of game animals on the landscape that don't really inspire that level of, you know, that don't really inspire that level of like a vehemence. Yeah. But we've just set them up to, in, in a social sense, I think we've set ourselves up for failure by not being totally transparent with people in some of these issues. Now, Matt, what would you not hunt for? Yeah, I know you're going on a bear hunt. I am going on a bear hunt. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, if it was, if I, the only things I wouldn't hunt for are the things that I'm concerned with eating because I don't really want to shoot anything that I don't want to eat. Yeah, you'd rather like, like hunt stuff that you're going to... Yeah, but even now, like cougar, I keep hearing from all sorts of people that cougar meat is fantastic you'd be shocked yeah i I hear it's terrific so i you know previously i would think well i don't really want to shoot a cougar because i don't want to eat the meat but i hear it's it's great uh i I mean even squirrels whatever it's all it all sounds good as long as the meat's consumable and and i and i like consuming it then Then i'm into it cool yeah I like that I get the nod when someone says, you know squirrels? And they look over at me. <laughs> I'm going to become like the world's number one yeah, squirrel hunting advocate. Squirrel man. <laughs> what hunts have you not done that you'd really like to do? Man. Um, there's so many. For me right now, I'm really kind of interested in stone sheep. Um, I've never hunted bighorn sheep. You know, if you, just to, to preface why I just said that or where I'm going with this. If you imagine, you know, sheep, at one time, all the, at one time, probably all the sheep that we have in North America. So you have doll sheep, stones, and there's kind of like a fanon, which is sort of a, you know, a intermediary sheep between there. And then you go down, you have Rocky Mountain bighorns and desert bighorns. Um, at one time, during the Pleistocene, we probably had, there was probably a species of sheep that extended from Siberia all the way down. It was probably like a species of sheep. And then through a lot of uh, climate factors, geologic factors, those sheep species were broken up where you had genetically distinct populations of sheep. And over time, we wound up with the, the array of sheep we have. So leaving out Siberia, you have snow sheep, but leaving out those you know, you have dolls in Alaska and in some portions of Northwest Canada, stones, and then you get down into continental U.S. and bighorns. I've been on bighorn hunts, a few of them, never drawn a bighorn tag. I've uh, been lucky enough to have been on a handful of doll sheep hunts, hunting with my brothers up in Alaska, killed a couple doll rams. 
I would really like to hit that middle ground and go out and see some stone sheep country and chase after a stone sheep. That's one thing I'd like to do. They're regarded as a thin-horned sheep, like a doll, but they're darker for dolls are white, and these are a darker-furred sheep. It's not so much like that I need like, oh, you know, imagine having one that had a dark hair, but it's more like just kind of like understanding this whole spectrum of mountain sheep and kind of seeing them in all their variations and all the landscapes they live in. So that, that's very high on my list. Is yeah, exploring the Canadian Rockies mm-hmm. is really why you're going there. Yeah, which is some wild-ass Rocky Mountains, man. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, got, they got parts of the Rockies that smoke anything we have in the lower 48 as far as remoteness and just wildness and having all of their animals on the landscape. That's the funny thing about wolf guy, like people that hate wolves categorically. It's like all the, everybody wants to go hunt in Alaska. Everybody wants to go hunt in Canada. They got wolves on the ground. Why, if wolves mean that you can't have good hunting and there's no such thing as like big game and wolves, why do you go to Alaska? You should know that you should steer clear because there's wolves so there can't be any game there. Yeah. They occupy 90, what, 96% of their historic range in Alaska. So that would, that would lead me to believe that like there's no point in going to that shithole to hunt, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, another location where <laughs> we were at like, recently. It's so weird that there's that like there's that misperception. But they, you know, they manage wolves hardcore in Alaska. But yeah, where we just were recently, I'll probably get an email about this because they're not gonna be too happy get, giving this info up. But we we're hunting mountain lions. Where there's a lot of mountain lions, good mountain lion hunting, mm-hmm. and I mean the deer tracks. Oh my god! Yeah. Well, they were thick. Yeah, they were hand in hand. Yeah, the lions are there because the deer were there. Yeah, it's a. I saw a thing one time to speak about lions and wolves. I saw a thing one time where uh, they figured that out of every one hundred cat, out of every one hundred elk calves, thirty are killed by mountain lions in in one particular area. Out of every one hundred elk calves, thirty get killed by mountain lions. Wolves came in, and everyone got real upset about wolves. But they think additively, wolves are killing 10 per 100. So people just got used to there being a survival of 70% of elk calves would survive. And that kind of became like how our whole management structure is built around this idea. Now that it's 60, it's noticeably different. It's changed everything. But all of the blame has fallen to this new thing when meanwhile you have your primary predator has always been on the ground. But no one had to deal with the idea that it used to not be there and now it's there. You know, it's like this sudden change rather than this old thing that was going on. It's such a it's like I, I hate talking about it, but I'm just so drawn to talking about it because the wolf thing is so rich for investigation. It's really hard to find consistent information on wolves on wolves in general and predation of wolves i I hear people talk all the time about oh you know one wolf is a hundred elk or you know consumes 30 elk a month and i i don't i don't know that's i don't seven pounds of meat a day right so that's coming from somewhere (laughs) right and and then people people talk about how they just hamstring all their animals and kill for fun and i'm not advocating for one or the other i'm just saying that i hear a lot of um pretty dramatic attitudes on how much wolves take oh yeah and you got people that tell you that they eat nothing but nuts and berries right right they're like oh it has no impact i'm like 
How could that be? They eat seven pounds of meat a day. There's 365 days in a year. They're eating something. Stop telling me that there has no impact on wild game. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of middle ground on it. You're no, dude, there's none. Polar, yeah, it's either polarized one direction or the other, but... There's none. They did that study down the Bitterroot, right? I think the Elk Foundation paid for it. I know my little local rod and gun club played a little bit of money into it. They found out the biggest uh, impact on those calf populations was uh, black bears. Yeah. And so they increased the quotas on black bears. And, like, there's many factors. There was those fires that, you know, went on down there. And so now there's a lot of, like, uh, browse and stuff. But black bears was a major contributor. And that they started, they changed the quotas. And now that population is rebounding. Like, you know, everybody kind of knew it could. Yeah. But the black bears were the ones that were, were the main factor. That's been interesting to see, like, in my lifetime, the, uh, the sort of transformation that our understanding of black bears has gone through. Where people used to sort of see him as this kind of bumbling opportunist who would eat some carrion, primarily vegetarian diet. And there's been so much research in just you know the last couple of decades about how effective they are yeah. on fawns. Yeah. And that they see these things moving into fawning areas like or calving areas before the elk even show up in anticipation of them coming in to drop calves and they just know about that resource. And I think people used to look right through them yeah. and, and see other stuff. And now we're seeing that yeah, the black bears are heavy hitters. There's that mule deer, they're doing a the mule deer study, con obviously controversial. They're doing a the mule deer study down in Colorado right now. Um, and it's in a basin where you have sort of this semi-isolated population of mule deer. They're finding that um, the deer are getting plenty of food when they weigh the fawns now, the fawns weigh more than past generations weighed at the same time, suggesting there's plenty of food, but there's just no recruitment. And they're looking, it's got to be a predator issue. And so they're going into this area. And instead, like when they generally done predator control in the past, they've done it where you just sort of throughout the year kind of target predators to try to drop numbers. But now they're trying to do, in this particular study, they're trying to do targeted predator removal at the same time as they're dropping fawns, thinking that this way you know you're getting the ones that are in the area. And they're going to see if that method might be a method where you're actually removing fewer predators and maybe moving the needle in favor of animals that are not doing so well. Because instead of trying this like shotgun approach where you're getting animals that may or may not even be in the area when they're dropping fawns, but to go in there and they're removing coyotes and black bears. Oh, and mountain lions, right? Coyotes and black bears and mountain lions in May to try to test, among other things, to try to test this idea that you might really help a population of animals out, like a declining population of ungulates, you might help them out by like specifically giving them like on the ground support at the moment they need it. Like covering fire, basically. Yeah, co yeah, yeah. covering fire, you know. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Coyotes are supposed to be really hard on deer fawns, aren't they? Yeah, again, I think it depends so much on the area. Yeah. But in places, yeah. And yeah. In, in other places, people are kind of surprised and they find out that they're, that they're not. Uh, but one of the reasons I think people like look at coyotes is coyotes are going through such a big range expansion that it's like this new thing now. Yeah. Right? It's this thing that you used to not think about. When I was a kid, uh, where I grew up, I remember ha half my life there were none in the area. Half my life there's a ton of them in the area. Yeah. And so when people see something new and they see some changes, yeah, I think that you can wind up having sort of a simplified impression of what's going on by accounting for this new thing, as demonstrated by people's, people's response to 
wolf predation as looking at it like as the reason something happened rather than it being like a component to a very complex picture. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one or two days. Along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever i've been shopping around on fast growing trees and i am fixing to get me a couple spruce trees for my yard right now they have some of the best deals online like up to half off on select plants our listeners get an additional 15 percent off their first purchase when using code me eater at checkout visit fastgrowingtrees.com and use code me eater at checkout for an additional 15 percent off fastgrowingtrees.com code meat eater offer is valid for a limited time minimum purchase may be required terms and conditions apply are you looking for relentless performance for your firearms if so riptide armory is the ultimate destination for superior gun cleaning and protection Riptide Armory offers American-made, innovative products out of Arvada, Colorado. Whether it's the delicate finish of a collectible or the rugged exterior of a tactical weapon, you can clean without risk of damage. Visit RiptideArmory.com and discover the difference true quality can make for your firearms. Riptide Armory, a veteran-founded business. Decked Drawer Systems. Their products let you store and transport anything and everything to and from whatever you are doing. I have been using a deck system for years. I would not want to drive a truck without a deck system in it. You can clear the clutter right out of your cab. No more tripping over duct tape, jumper cables, toe straps. You put all that stuff in the deck system. Get rid of the random tubs and bins. You get out more, get more done, spend your time doing what you want to do when you have all your stuff organized and ready to go where it should be, all tucked away in your deck system. I've always loved decked, as is, but it's even better now because they just redesigned their drawer system and storage cases from the ground up. They got the Deco case line. These cases are as tough, if not tougher, than Pelican case or Go boxes. Totally waterproof and dustproof. You can literally run over them in your truck and they will be fine. High quality latches and handles make them really easy to use. They look great. They are made in the USA. To check it out, go to decked.com slash meat eater. Get yourself free shipping. Um, what happened with your... This is something that comes up so much. That's too complicated to get into. What gear do you recommend splurging on up front versus what gear can you work around and invest in later? Boots. Boots. Splurge. Boots. Yeah. I don't want to spend as much on my boots as my gun. <laughs> yeah. I remember a guy I used to hunt with, he was a packer for a guide out on the, on the Alaska Peninsula. And the guy's thing was, if he had a... Um, you know, if he had a thousand dollars to spend, I can't remember how it went. I think it went like, if he had a thousand dollars to spend on hunting gear, he'd spend a hundred on a rifle and nine hundred on his binoculars. Yeah. I've heard that. It took me a long time to realize that shit. 
I went through a lot of my life without ever looking through a good pair of knockers. The minute I did, I'm like, oh, now I see. Now I see what this is all about. That was a big change for me, man. Good binos. Yeah. I've looked through mediocre ones, and I've looked through really good ones, and I've been kind of hard-pressed to make the, the, what? the jump from the... Really? I have. I don't know why. I'm a buddy of mine. Russ, Dad's looking, got are like you the, looking through the right end? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he had like the $2,000 Swarovski, like the amazing binos, and uh, my $450 Nikons. It's like I'll put them side by side, take the Pepsi challenge like you like to say, and... <laughs> Dude, I, don't under, I don't understand how I don't understand how you can think that way. Like, you take the lens, I'm just kind of a caps, the lens caps off. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've been I don't know. I've been uh, like I said. I've held like the really expensive. I mean, sure, if I want to see the color of the thing's eyes, and but I mean, I can see real well. I mean, I'm deaf as a post for 2010, and I can see. I don't know. Do you spend a lot of time glassing when you're hunting? Tons. Oh, okay. like tripod. Oh, freehand yeah. it. Yeah. Have you yeah, ever you're tried in for a, a treat, man. Oh yeah, it's the greatest. I can't do like you guys with the spot and scopes and stuff like no, no, that. No, 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 no. Just no. Binos on a tripod. Binos on a tripod. Man, I'm trying. I You'll re- be like, oh, I didn't realize that all of this shit lived out here. <laughs> okay. When you start doing that, yeah, all right. It's like, oh, there's a quail five miles That's away, late, right? Just a little movement. Mm-hmm. It's not like my knockers. Like my binos are good. They're you know. Yeah, if you put them on a tripod, it'll blow your mind. I almost never. Pull a spotting scope. Almost never pull my spotting scope out anymore. Unless either like my buddy's got my binos on, and I don't have my binos, or I need to see closer what I'm looking at. Like a lot of times, I'll you just have such a wide field of view, and you can see everything moving in your Mm -hmm. binos on the tripod. So I'll you know I pick out you can pick out the body. Maybe it's hard to see the horns behind the branches or whatever, and then you put the spotting scope on and dial it in. Yeah, I, I I seldom pull out. Very seldom pull out my spotting scope unless I'm already looking at an animal. In fact, the guys I hunt with, like if me and Yanni are up on a glass and tit, and he gets out his, he like reaches over, you know, like you got your eyes through your binos, but you're sort of like looking in your pack for your spot scope. I know what that means. So he sees something, and he wants to get a more careful look at it. Now and then there might be some little hellhole, shadowy area. And I start getting real curious about it, and I want to take a gander in there, and I'll pull my spot scope out. But generally, it's like I'm like, oh, there's something. What is it? Tell me more. And I'll pull a spot scope out to figure out what's going on. Or I'll glass up. It's just like glass in a hill, and I see a buck stand up and then lay back down. Or let's say I see a doe stand up and lay back down. I'm like, there's got to be more deer bedded in there. I look with my binos, don't find them, get out my spot scope, and then I start going like, oh, yeah, there's actually four of them in there. There's one's ear. There's one's hoof. You know, it's always to do that like detail work. The first time I ever put a pair of binoculars on a on a tripod was hunting coos deer. Couldn't believe it. Then probably shortly after that, I went on a mule deer hunt and was spotting mule deer. I would have never have spotted if I hadn't if I wasn't running that because you don't feel it, but you're shaking, and it makes it that like one movement disappears when you're moving. Things that are moving, their movement just blends in with the movement that you're doing. And the other thing is, you just notice parts of shit. Right. You know, you, you always hear, I used to like hate it. You'd be reading articles and they'd be like, you're not actually looking for a deer. You know, you're looking for a little flick of antler or a toe or, you know. Colors. And it winds up being like, yeah, that's kind of true, but it's like you're not looking for a little piece of antler either. 
you're just like looking and you develop a search image of all these different things and you just wind up like picking up on natural lines. Daniel Boone said that you had, during the Indian Wars, you had more of a chance of spotting an Indian's rifle than you did the Indian. Because, hmm. you know, they were using those five-foot long Kentucky, Kentucky rifles. Yeah. yeah, you just get in your head like there's like certain shapes that just don't right. occur. Not that they don't occur in the natural world because a deer is part of the natural world. But there's certain shapes that just don't belong to plants, I guess. And now and then you're like, I know that weird knee-looking thing sticking off from under that tree. And um, I started to blow it up when I started running tripod. I mean, it completely changed the way it I It just, hunt. that's it that changed the way I Yeah, you'll feel like your Nikons are a different binocular. The first time I ever made my dad use a tripod, I was going to hunt across his valley and I just had him glassing for the same hillside just, you know, where I wasn't <clears throat> for the next hunt. And that evening when we reconvened, he's like, man, like, I had no idea how good my binoculars were. Like same binoculars he's been using for you ten can, you years. Can live up to the, you can let them see their full. You let your yeah. knockers realize their full potential. Yeah, and I almost feel like what the the question is, uh, what can you? What are you laughing about? The knockers, knockers. your full potential. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so juvenile. Like I just have to like. Oh yeah, no, like nice knockers. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm talking awesome. about your binos, bro. Yeah, he's got nice knockers. The uh, what gear can you splurge on, or should you splurge on? No, now? I'm not done talking about knockers. No, because I want to say Continue. another thing. Um, we didn't really use binoculars when I lived in, in the eastern. No, US. I was still talking about binoculars. Oh, I thought you were switching to other gear. Oh, mm -mm. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Mm -mm. Because we originally we everybody blurted out boots, and I do agree with the boots are right up there. Oh yeah. But I feel like binoculars. If you buy a good pair of binoculars now and really do splurge, it might be the only pair of binoculars you ever buy. And maybe if you take really take really good care of them, you can pass them on to the next generation, and they could use them for almost a yeah. lifetime. You know, unless the technology gets that much better, where a pair of boots will wear out. And I know that early on in my <clears throat> elk hunting career, I think I did hunt in. Um, I mean, they were like hundred dollar. I don't want to say they were high techs, but it's definitely just something out of Cabela's. And I was like, I just need something, you mm -hmm. know, that I can afford that'll get me through, and you know. I would say splurge on the binos. Yeah, if you're hunting in your Before daddy's boots. boots, your daddy didn't do much hunting. <laughs> right. They just don't last. Uh, binos, man, I don't really. And it, you can't really buy good binos that aren't covered by a good, or not that you can't. Don't buy good binos that aren't covered by a good warranty. You know, all, the, all the good companies have a good warranty. Vortex has what there's called VIP warranty. It's like if they break, you just send them in, get new ones. Um, and buy, I would say too, buy a kind where the manufacturer covers them. Don't rely on who you bought them from to cover them. Like, don't get knockers where if something happens, like you, you break the eye cup on them, you're going to go back down to the retail location. Figure out which companies you can use that you send it into the company. They do the repair and send them back. Because it's just a way better approach. And also, buy from a company that's you know, been around. I don't know if, I don't even know if anybody makes like fly by night optics companies, but it, it really changes. And, you know, we always had binoculars when I hunted, when I lived in the Eastern half of the country, you know, we had binoculars, didn't rely on them as much. Then in Western hunting, I really developed a, um, a real love with binoculars. And like I said, it kind of changed my way to hunt. But even now when I go back 
and hunt if i'm hunting squirrels or, or hunting deer i'm glassing up stuff that i that 20 years ago i wouldn't have found last time i was sitting at hunting doug dern's white deer farm in wisconsin during the middle of the day i just take out my knockers and not on a tripod but just lean them on the rail of the ground blind start looking down in the creek and the brush on the creek and i'm picking off bedded deer down there that have been there the entire time i've been sitting in that blind without knowing they're there. They were already laying there when it got light. They're 150 yards away from me. And it wasn't until one o'clock in the afternoon I was bored out of my mind that I decided to tear that little brush patch apart and realize there's all kinds of deer laying there. And in the old days, I would have gone the whole day and not knowing they're there. And then hunting squirrels. You'd think like, oh, he went in a hole. Half the time he didn't. Half the time he's like laid up on top of some branch and you get your knockers up there and you see some little tuft of tail fur blown in the breeze that you would have never found without binos. I can't stand being on the woods with albinos. Put that in your pipe and smoke. All it. right. I will take that with me. All right. Anybody else? Any other gear? You I just mean, splurge the, on? Well, the, the only thing I would, that I would say that's uh, maybe not pertinent to this conversation, but something that I splurged on a long time ago was a raft. And that raft has gotten me out on A raft? So, yeah, it's gotten me out on so many, like... I mean, one, fishing, like, I just use it way more. But it's also got me on on hunting trips, too, that I probably wouldn't have done. So, like, I mean, that's a big ticket item. Oh, yeah. Um, but, like, like one, I think you feel like you don't, you want to use it because you did spend that money. But, man, it gets you in some really cool places. And, uh, yeah, so I'd say I'd say a raft on top of the glass. I mean, I think the glass is super important. No, I, I like the way you're thinking, man. I think, you know, um, I think a big thing, the thing that I am usually always own you know, it's a big item, but like I typically always will own a canoe of some sort. Mm-hmm. And then it really, having that in your toolkit, you know, helps you in hunting all the time. Totally. Squirting across, even if it's just like squirting across a marsh or squirting across a river and getting a little bit away from where everybody's parking, you know, it's a good thing. We'll, we'll do one last one, then we'll do some concluding thoughts. This is directed toward me, but we, everybody can speak to us. How does Steve draw so many tags? I don't think I draw shit for tags. <laughs> If you like, here's the thing I put in every state. So every year when I do my tags, I put in, I put in for starting in the top left corner of our country. I put in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado. California, Arizona, Utah, Nevada, and places elsewhere for everything. Oh, I forgot about Alaska. I put in for every draw in Alaska. I don't skip anything unless I'm not eligible because like, you know, for instance, I drew a a muskox tag and you got to go a certain number of years before you put in for muskox again. I put in for every damn drawing. I don't draw shit. This fall, I don't think... We, Where do people yeah, get that idea? We, did, we didn't hunt... Well, I think that they're confusing some of the hunts that we go on... Um, thinking it's a draw thinking hunt. Thinking it's a draw hunt. But this fall, we didn't do a single draw hunt. Okay, there you go. So, yeah, this... We hunted our asses off from August till Christmas. Never did... And it was all... 100% over the counter. All over the counter. And we didn't do a single private land hunt. Did we? I had to think a little bit, but... I don't think, I, I don't think we stepped foot on private land for big game this year. Is this person in the West? Can he Does he doesn't say. say. Or the, what I have in front of me doesn't say whether he's from the West or not. Okay. I when just, was the last time you hunted a special draw? Like a tough, to, like a tag where people are like, how'd you draw that? Uh, t- two years, two years ago. 
I, I, I hunted a, a unit in Oregon that's... It was like a good draw. Yeah, but it was because my buddy had a whole ton of points, and, and I had actually drawn a good tag the year before, which took me seven years to draw. I'd drawn a good tag before, the year before, and he had fifteen, he had 14 points or something and said, hey, you want to... We should this, go on this hunt, and so we just split the points. I had zero, but he had like 12, I think, and so this unit took five or six and so we split them and yep. got to hunt it this is the kind of stuff this i want to use this question as a springboard to talk about a little bit of this that kind of stuff yeah i know there's a very renowned archer who people are like well how can he do all these amazing hunts and it's because he's very good and there's a lot of people who would love to spend time with him in the woods and he teams up with them on draws he hunts with guys who have 20 points in some unit and he's like, we'll go in together, we'll split your points, and, and we will hunt together, and I will show you what's up. Just a friendship, you know, no money exchanging hands, just like a friendship arrangement. So, yeah. People are like, how does he draw all those tags? Because it's something he cares a great deal about and does the time and puts in the work and makes it that he gets to go do those hunts. Yeah, he's got expertise in the area or something that he can trade yeah. for that. Trade for some opportunity. yeah. yeah. Um, that's one way. But yeah, I got no magic when it comes to tag draws, man. At all. You ever hunt a special tag? Mm, no. Washington's really tough. I wouldn't even know half the stuff that I put in for it. Or I mean, like you just say, hunt, you just hunt, t- buy, go down to the drugstore or gas station and buy a license. Pretty much, I put in for a couple like six eighty Montana archery elk. I put in for pronghorn. Generally, that's really about it. Yeah. I mean, most of the stuff I do, like I said, is just over the counter. I've killed, like, in my life, hunt all the time, and I've done a ton of hunting for a ton of different big game. I've killed one, like, world-class animal, okay? Mm-hmm. And that animal I killed in a, at a, on a tag I bought at a gas station mm-hmm. on National Forest Land. <laughs> you go in and be like, I want a deer license, please. Okay, that'll be. And then you walk out in the woods and hunt. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, the one world-class animal I've killed. Mm-hmm. I had to put in for a tag for the elk that I shot this past year, but the whole area is... Private, so I mean, I had to. I, oh, literally, I literally so once had you got auto, in, yeah, yeah. I yeah. literally Oregon, like I had to click off twice that I understood that private land. This is all private land, so. But you got you had a buddy. I did have a buddy. You know. Yeah, Russ took us down. There. Yeah, your buddy that has a cattle operation. Uh, leases out cattle. Yeah, property. leases out some grazing on their place. Yeah. yeah, it's good stuff. Land, coming off big big horn sheep hunt. Ooh. Uh, yeah. How many years did that yeah, take? Yeah, 14. <laughs> so you put in for Bighorns 14 years and drew a tag. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the other hunter, there's only two in that area, and he put in for 31 years. <laughs> uh, How do you draw so many tags? <laughs> I will say that, like, I drew another, I drew a mountain goat tag the year my daughter was born. She was born July 21st, and that tag started uh, August 15th. And uh, I, <laughs> that was our first kid, and I didn't get out. My, my my wife told me I couldn't do. You like, didn't go? No, I went. I went oh. like five, six days, but she, which wasn't even that much, but I wasn't in a row either, and it was only out for the day. And so I would bike in as far as I could go, then hike in, see goats, start to crawl on those goats, and by that time it's almost you know it's almost starting to like get dark. I mean, no joke. That was like I, mean, I saw goats every single time. So I ate that tag, and that was. Uh, painful, and I know how old my daughter is because I have to, you have to wait for seven years, and I just started being able to put them again for this year. Yeah. So, so every time you look at it, there's a little bit of resent. Oh, there, she's going to know yeah. about it, you know, yeah. forever. And <laughs> like, you ruined, you ruined my life. <laughs> and what I hope happens, 
What I hope happens is that someday she draws a mountain goat tag and we get to go do it together and she shoots a mountain goat, that whole thing is complete. Yeah. That would be like... In our big game guidebook, my favorite picture in our big game guidebook is my brother's... Um, his wife drew a mountain goat tag. And then by the time her hunt date came around, she was six months pregnant. But yeah, killed a goat with she a did. giant gut. That's awesome. Giant <laughs> gut. She's got like this sort of like... In this picture, she's even wearing like one of those things that gals put on her super pregnant. It's almost like this like high waist like support. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but with a big old belly. Yeah, that's cool. Six months pregnant. That's but right. She's she is a badass. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, she's a badass. I foresee you starting to draw more tags. Oh yeah, because I'm building up a lot of points, man. Yeah, but it's just, yeah, but you, you get them and then they're gone. You know. So what happens? I mean, because I'll sometimes do overkill on a tag. It'd be like, oh yeah, you could draw this tag with three points, and there'll be something. Oh, where I got like six. I'm like, so we did. You in. did hunt on a yeah, Colorado was draw. Oh, I misspoke. Yep, there's a lie. I drew it with how many points? Three. Okay, so yep, I do draw a lot of tags. I drew. <laughs> <laughs> I drew a. This last year, I drew a Colorado deer tag that you can draw with certainty with three points. Oh, you can probably draw with certainty with. Maybe even just two. I think I got lucky and drew it with one. Okay. So probably not what this guy's getting at. No. I draw a lot of tags by... Okay, I'll give you a straight dope. I've been lying. Um, <laughs> when you're in show business, tags. there's a thing called the show business tag. And you, you call up the state and you'd be like, hey, I'm in show business. And They're like, who, they just, who are your, your Hollywood your cronies? Hollywood. Yeah, do you have Hollywood cronies? I'm I have like, a yes. helicopter. Do you have a helicopter? There, I'm like, yes, yeah. I do. Check like, the box. Just tell us what tags you need and we'll send them over. <laughs> You have to wear a department. You have pictures of you and these celebrities together. And I'm like, yeah, I can back it up. Like, cool. What what tags would you like? Yeah. I I really haven't found that the draw tags I've ever drawn, I've had any more success on than the -the over-the-counter tags. In fact, I think I probably have had more success on over-the-counter tags than the draw tags that I've drawn. Even when you factor out per per hunt day? Yeah. Yeah, I just I'm working I'm working just as hard on either one. I don't necessarily know that I've seen the opportunity go up. Might at it all. be that the over the counter areas are areas you're hunting often and have friends that hunt them often, and so you build up like a database, and then a rare tag opportunity you're going into a place you've never been before. That's yeah, that's possible. Yeah, for sure. I drew a very coveted uh, doll sheep tag in Alaska in 2010, and. I found that hunt to be wildly different than the general doll sheep hunts we'd been on. Like, I felt it was a lot different. Yeah. Could have just been a lucky moment. Better. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just, you know, it was just, it was, yeah, it was a thing that was normally like this nine-day gruel fest that turned into like a pretty, you could have kept going and looking, but it was like, didn't take long. Well, like, oh, there's a ram. And my buddy's like, hey, there's another ram over there. And um, ha- hadn't been our finding in the past, right. you know. But um, in other cases, I'm sure. I-, I talk to, every year I talk to guys who draw some tag, they think it's going to be the hunt of a lifetime, and they go out and get their ass handed yeah. to them. There's no reason to think that you can't go out on a public land. If you, if you do your homework and you're working hard for it and you spend enough time, you can't go out on a public land hunt and have the hunt of a lifetime. Yeah. I mean, that's been the... the like, Over the counter. The bulk of my hunting. Yeah. Until you got your Hollywood cronies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the helicopters. <laughs> and the helicopters. All right. Mm-hmm. Concluding thoughts, Matt? I want 
I think I need to get more experimental with my meat preparation consumption. You when you're cooking largemouth? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll do that for sure. I should have I thrown that in as an animal that I just can't eat. But, uh, <laughs> uh, the largemouth bad. You sent me a picture, I think it maybe is some moose bone marrow or you know yeah. you had a knife laid on top of it and i just thought man i'm so boring when i saw that picture it just looked so cool all the colors and the but you would have eaten it or not oh yeah oh, yeah, okay, yeah yeah no i just need to get i'm i'm still kind of stuck in the like sausage steak burger rut i need to start doing some more experimenting yeah I tongue think is another easy one too. lingua huh yeah yeah but braised shanks braised ribs braised shoulders it's the it's the it's like the um, if I, you know, like we said earlier, if I was gonna like hand off someone a tip, I'd be like, that's a, a rich field of inquiry, culinary inquiry, right there. Do you I know? get to? You want to pl- plug your company? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, plug your company. So, I, so tell us something eat, cool about Benchmade. Not, not even just, not even just Benchmade. I mean, Benchmade's obviously cool. I mean, I think we make the, and we, we do make some of the highest performing knives, if not the highest performing production knives you can you can buy and on the hunting side for sure but what i was going to say is we were talking about the first question we talked about with knives was fixed blade folder replaceable blade knife i'm i'm down for replaceable blade knives people want to pack them but i would just encourage anyone to please pack a hard use knife with you especially if you're going out and doing backcountry stuff it any survival expert would tell you that after food and water the next Number one thing to have is is a hard use knife. Yeah, and I think too people hear survival and they imagine it being like a bigger thing. So you can almost say like any shitty situation or yeah. any like even kind of dicey situation. Yep. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't need to be like this idea that oh you know you're stranded in the woods for a month. Just be like a really bad night. Like a really bad night can be made a lot better if you have the ability to do a little bit of woodcraft. Right. Make a fire, strike a flint, whatever it might be. And yeah. A hard use knife is is. Really important. Find some dry slivers of heartwood to get a fire going. Whatever, yeah. rough out a little spot to get out of the wind. Yeah. I hear you. Jimmy Dorn? Uh, What's that hat you got on? Is it a, is it a fish spearing hat? It's a Seattle Mariners logo. Oh, okay. I tried it. Good. Baseball. My big I thought sport, you were some kind of sucker spear. Big spear. sports guy, right? No. Uh, well, I'm probably going to start looking for a lightweight tripod. That's another thing I didn't add is... I always look at those things as more weight that I got to hump. Tell you what, it's and, more uh, money if you're going to get a good one. Get, again, with the binos, get a good one. I'd get, yeah. out, get an outdoorsman's. Yeah. Call outdoorsman's in Phoenix, Arizona, and tell them you, to ask, say you want to talk to Cody. Cody? All right. Because he'll hook you up with the tripod, the adapter that fits your bino. Okay. Okay. And you could, you could beat a person to death with their tripods. Yeah. Not does, that I'd recommend that. Does it I'm weigh 22 make, pounds? Or? No, they're made out of, they're made out of uh, you know, it's like machine aluminum parts okay. and stuff. They're pricey. Nice. Made in the USA. Made in the, yeah. Giddy up. Tell yeah, me what. I'm in. You want to talk about that red, white, and blue bird of freedom? Hey, if you say. He flies, he flies over the outdoorsman's office. He does. Man, he, yeah. If you say it's something should be done, then, you know, I'll probably take your word for it. No, you'll. When you're laying on your deathbed, you won't be like, man, if no, I had only, only not, not bought that tripod. Yeah. Like, yeah. For me, it's always been just about the weight. It's like oh, one man. more thing. Man, this stuff just weighs stuff. Stop being such a baby. <sighs> I'm not a baby, man. I'm this just kind of like, like Super that. lightweight, don't need anything. I'm like, what, what, how, when did everybody become so afraid of carrying something? Well, because we're always walking straight uphill. I'm like, well. I got a friend in the military, I got a friend in the military who's telling me like when, they, when he, he was in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
and he would set out and you know set out what all different times of day and get posted up on a rooftop somewhere and um he said well they grow out two guys okay mm-hmm. and i'm like well how much saw that way 150 pounds Lord. And now he was like, oh, yeah, I got my kit down to fucking 12 pounds. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay, sure. I could, like, not bring all kind of stuff with me, too. Yeah. But some stuff is just, like, really nice to have. I smell you find cooking. more animals. Uh-huh. Well, I'll give it a shot. Land? Uh, this is kind of a question. So I don't know if everybody's ever done this, but I kept the nuts off that sheep. Oh, buck nuts? Yeah. And so if you've done nuts? that. Yeah, ram nuts. Just yeah. To, I'll tell you exactly how to cook them. Okay. Get yourself a lot of butter, more butter than you think, and get it in a pan, and then put the pan over medium-low heat and tip the pan so all the butter collects on one edge of the pan and lay your bucknut in there and just baste that bucknut and baste that bucknut and baste that bucknut with butter and keep rolling it and rolling it and rolling it and basting it with butter till it's cooked through. What does basting mean? You don't know what basting means? I know what it means. Oh. Spooning up butter and spooning up hot butter and pouring it over the top so you're just like bathing it yeah, yeah. right and then you hold, can make hot but hot buttered buck nuts by adding some and i know you like i know you like hot sauce yeah put a little dash of hot sauce in that butter toward the end and base it up and you're making like a like a buffalo wild nut right um or a hot buttered buck nut or don't do that just salt and pepper let it cool because if you if it's super hot and you cut it it'll it'll burst let it cool a little bit slice it do you like octopus yeah okay yeah do you like bacon yeah you're gonna love nuts okay <laughs> it's like an octopus <laughs> it's like an octopus mated a bacon oh man. <laughs> a bacon that is a beauty beautiful baby yes. um yeah last so thing I, I would say oh this is your concluder is that you guys said this is like the last questions that you're gonna do. I think you can take a break or whatever on it, but I like this is pretty cool. Like all oh, the no, different. This is the qu- last meat eater podcast fan question episode ever. Yeah, I no think it, I think it works. They're just gonna keep coming in now. They're gonna flood the inbox. I can see it. Well, it's it's largely like a thing for me. Like it's almost like psychological, or it's so taxing. Um, like I'm so sensitive that some of the questions, like the about the uh, uh, helicopters and whatnot. <laughs> Hit me so hard personally okay. that it becomes very it becomes okay. difficult for me. So now we're getting down to like the root of yeah. it. Right. It's like it's so it. mentally and emotionally burdensome for me. And then we get to talking about wolves and shit, and I'm so torn about that subject. And I see all sides of it, and I'm trying to like wrestle out a livable, meaningful compromise that can please as many people and still kind of get where I think things need to be. Sure. It's just really difficult for me emotionally. Yeah. When you get off that... I would that. rather watch my babies be born. <laughs> That's like easier emotionally than it is to, to wrestle with well, these questions. All right. Well, maybe this is the last one. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you. <laughs> That's heavy duty because those are some emotional moments. <laughs> Not when your babies were born, but when mine were. Well, yeah. Well, you guys do it like Little House on the Prairie, man. <laughs> <laughs> we go down to the hospital watch, watch a movie <laughs> um, I, I don't know what happened what was that fellow's name out of Maryland he was helping us out with the sick of deer hunt that we postponed I can't remember now but he sent me an email said he tried the basted buck nuts 
and they sort of he he uh, explained it as they turned inside out and became very mushy. Got them too hot. I'm guessing that's what happened. Got them too hot. So yeah, definitely like a that's medium. called medium. Burst and bu- that's called burst and buck nuts, <laughs> nice. and that's not what a recommended recipe yeah, for me. Doesn't sound good. Medium burst low, medium low, low on the heat. Yeah, then you get that nice octopus right. rubbery out exterior. Sure. I've got a pair in my freezer. For first time ever. I got a pair thanks, for you right here, thanks buddy. Thanks to you. Hey, big fella. <laughs> Easy. I'll cut you off on the pizza train. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, did did anybody not get a um? Did anybody not get a concluding thought? Oh, I have nice. a concluding question yeah. for Matt. Since we're, I don't know when we'll get to hang out oh, again. Jimmy, did, be, Jimmy hasn't a had one. Question. What's that? You didn't get a concluding did, thought. Did, did, yeah, I did. Tripod. Tripod. Oh, sorry. It's good to go. Two most common type shapes of blades for a hunting knife would be drop point and clip point. Okay, and then can you just quickly explain why somebody would go with one versus the other? Yeah, so a clip point that's more like your your traditional lockback knife that your grandpa had that kind of the blade sweeps down and into the tip. That generally creates a sharper point on the knife. You get less radius that way, so less blade less curve surface in your blade edge. Mm-hmm. So that, that gives you the ability to do more finite work. So like a caping knife oftentimes would be a clip point. Yep. Uh, a drop point has a stronger tip than a clip point, so it's gonna, you're going to be able to do a little harder stuff with it. I think it's a better general purpose utility knife, and it also has a larger blade radius, so you can do more skinning with it. So it, it's good. To, it's, it's really good to have both. Yeah, in a perfect yeah. world, I like both. Yep. I use one for my opening cuts and my detail work. And use the other one for the big sweeping things. Yep. Um, but I was not going to carry two of them. Right. I I I kind of I, I always go back and forth. Like if I bring one, like if I bring a clip point, I like it when I'm you know unzipping everything. And then later I'm like, hey, you know, I like my other one better. Yep. Right. When you're yep. doing like all that skinning and trying to do a nice job and leave like a, especially if you're trying to clean skin something. Yep. Like if you're doing a bear, you don't want to leave you know pounds of fat and meat on there. You get such a nice job. But then when I bring that one, it's just the opening cuts aren't as fun. They're not. They're not. If you were only if, if I was going to recommend only bringing one, I would recommend it be a drop point. I think it's Is that right? Yeah, I think it's it's more it's it's better generally for all things, but you're right. The opening cuts aren't as fun. It's harder to get the tip of the knife up under the skin because it just doesn't have quite yeah. the, the the steep angle but on. But like that the one I like the that one it won all the awards too, the steep country. Yeah. Is a pretty like dramatic drop point it is yep yeah yeah but it's durable it is and so is that kind of you're doing that on that drop point to kind of blend the two worlds a little bit and so i mean the the steep country is a it's a pretty typical drop point except for a fixed blade we were able to to make the blade itself wider and i mean like taller if you're looking at it from Mm -hmm. the side profile and that gives us a a, a larger radius, so that's gotcha. what we did. So yeah, we d- we did that so that you could have an increased ability to make longer cuts, and then also when you have a bigger radius, you're spreading the cut across a basically a, a longer surface, so you get better edge retention that way too. Because yeah, you're applying it to a, a more edge, so it equals better edge retention. The old mountain man. You ever go to mountain man museums and stuff? The old mountain men definitely drop point guys. Yeah, they were not clip point guys. Yeah. I don't know if clip points existed back then, but they like those big bellied, you know, like the old skinning knives, yep. like big bellied knives. Yeah. 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 But it is like, it's like, you know, you see a lot of those companies that make those little kits where it's one of each, but it feels a little overkilly to me, you know? 
And then it's just more junk laying around because I got a real problem with like uh, when you leave the kill site, you know, it's one in the morning or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just like the less stuff I'm kind of like trying to remember to grab, the better. Yeah. But that would help you achieve that minimum pack weight that you're looking for is if you had a couple extra, if you had both types of blades. No, that would not do it. Oh, I'm sorry. You're making a funny joke. Um, <laughs> I don't have that. My, you know, my concluding thought is, is about, about being emotionally taxed. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Land, Jimmy, Matt, thank you very much. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you. Super fun. You guys are great. Wealth of knowledge. Um, I appreciate it. If we ever get together to do questions again, we'll do it. If not, we'll come talk about just we'll do like an all wolf episode sometime. <laughs> All wolf, all hour. All right, thanks for listening. Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.